All right. We are currently working our way through the book of Acts. We've been examining Paul's sermon to the Galatians in chapter 13. Paul preached the gospel uh, to people in the Galatian town of Pisidian Antioch. In verses 16 to 22, Paul reminded his listeners of God's promise to bring the Messiah through the line of Abraham and, and then through the line of King David. In verse 23, he told them that God fulfilled his promise by bringing Jesus who had been descended from Abraham and David. In verse 24, and this is where we've been in the last weeks, in verse 24, Paul told them that John the Baptist had come to prepare the people for Jesus' arrival to prepare and announce the arrival of Jesus. Last Sunday, we spent a good 50 or so minutes talking about how John prepared the way. We kind of came at it from different angles. John preached that the kingdom was coming along with its king, and he preached repentance, and then he baptized the repentant in the Jordan. That was kind of his ministry, announcing the coming kingdom, preparing the people, you know, calling for them to admit their sin, confess their sin, and then to get baptized as a representation of their faith and the removal of that sin. This morning, we will pick back up at verse 25. So if you want to turn right over there, Acts 13, verse 25, that's where we'll be this morning. Acts 13, verse 25. I'll give you a second just to fly over there. Acts 13, verse 25. We're going to continue to look at what Paul said about John the Baptist. Okay, and then we're going to transition into the, the up-and-coming verses. We're going to work those texts a little bit, too, if time provides. If not, we'll get to it in the coming weeks. But we're going to camp out on 25 a little bit, then we'll begin to move forward. Paul did say some additional things here about John the Baptist. So are you there? Are you at Acts 13, 25? Say, I'm there if you're there. All right, sounds like you're there. Let me pray. Father, just open our hearts and minds right now. God, we're just dull. I know I'm dull. And I need your spirit, Lord, to illuminate me, to open up my heart and mind to you. It won't do it on its own. It's the same with everyone here, Lord. So we need your help now. We're going to rely on you, Lord Jesus, that you'd come. In fact, we know you're here. We've sensed your presence. We've heard from you. We've worshipped you. And so now, Lord, we just want to give this time of worship to you. We want to continue to worship you. So speak to us, Lord. A few minutes ago, we were singing songs to you. We were speaking to you. And now, Lord, during this worship service, you're going to speak to us. And we need to hear from you. And do we need to hear from you. And we trust that you'll speak to us. And may you not only speak, Lord, but may you send your spirit to not only open our ears, to open our minds to change the way that we think, the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we treat one another, the way that we respond to you. And we give this time up to you. Help us. And we pray this in Jesus' remarkable, fabulous, wonderful name, name above all names. Amen. 25, 1325, let me read it. It says, and as John, John the Baptist, and as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Towards the end of John's ministry... 
John the Baptist, scribes and Pharisees came to question him. They had made several visits out to his ministry along the River Jordan just to check it out. It was amassing lots and lots of people from the whole region. There were an estimated over 100,000 people or so had come at one point in time to, to hear him preach and to, to listen to him preach and to see how he ministered and to even be baptized. He, he baptized great numbers of people. And on occasion, the scribes and Pharisees came out there to investigate. They were charged with the responsibility of overseeing the religious affairs and even some political affairs, the Sadducees, of the nation of Israel. And so they came out to question him towards the end of his ministry several times before, but more particularly towards the end of his ministry. They thought perhaps he might be the Messiah. Well, he's saying some things about the kingdom and about the Messiah and the coming kingdom and the coming king. And in their minds, they're thinking, well, maybe he's announcing himself. Maybe he's about to come out and display himself and and, uh, and then take that, you know, take the throne, take it away from the Romans or what have you. And so they began to ponder these things to themselves. And they came out and thinking that he might be the Messiah, they plainly asked him who he was. Who are you? Who are you? And John told them that he was not the Messiah. He said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one to come. He actually said that he was so much lower than the one to come, the Messiah, that he wasn't even worthy to perform the lowest act of service for the Messiah to come, which was to untie his sandals. Now look at what else John the Baptist said in John 3, 25 to 30. You just heard it read. I'd turn there because we're going to spend a, some time studying that text. John 3, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 25 to 30. I want to further examine uh, some things that John the Baptist said, which will help to set up some major points that are going to be made in a few moments. John chapter 3, 25 to 30. You just heard it read. I'll read it again. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. We'll start right there. Start and stop there. What happened was an argument developed between a Jewish inquisitor and the disciples of John the Baptist. That's what we see in the text. There was confusion over the respective merits of Jesus and John. If both were baptizing, Jesus and John, whose baptism was valid, which is essentially what they asked, by popular acclaim, Jesus' influence was growing and John's was waning. John's interrogators felt that their friend and teacher had been eclipsed by Jesus' sudden popularity. And they wanted an explanation. And so they came to him. They came and said, what's up? What's going on? Why is his ministry expanding and yours maybe not so much? The guy that you came to proclaim, why are things really happening there and not so much with you? Now look at how John answered them in verse 27, 327. This is what John the Baptist said. He said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The first thing that John does as he begins to answer is he highlights God's sovereignty over the granting of ministry opportunities. 
He said it himself. A person cannot receive even one thing. He's not going to have ministry unless it is given to him from heaven. I love that, how he highlights God's sovereignty over service. Many of you serve the Lord in various capacities, and you probably think that you came down and did that, and you, know, and you decided to obey and all that, and there's some truth to that. But guess what? It was sovereignly granted to you that you would serve the Lord, that you would be saved first. He grants salvation, and he also grants opportunity to serve, and he gifts you to serve. And he gives you time, talent, and treasure to serve with. And so it's imperative that we understand God's sovereignty over the granting of ministry opportunities. It's as if John is saying this. The reason why Jesus has a ministry, a growing ministry, and people to baptize is because God granted it. I suppose we could look at their question and his answer in the form of a Q&A. Simply put, the question was, why is Jesus baptizing more people than you? That's what they came and asked. They did it in a more clever, kind way. But that's essentially what they asked. Answer, God granted it. God granted it is what John said. Now look at what John said next. Verse 28. John 3, 28. He says... You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This is what John says to them. In essence, he said, you were there when I said I'm not the Messiah and that I had been sent before him. You were there when I said that I was the one to come or who came crying in the wilderness and to pave the way, making the Lord's path straight. He's reminding them, you were all there. You knew that I talked about him, that one greater was coming, that I had simply come just to be Caltrans and work the street for him. That's basically what he says. I was just coming to prepare the way. I told you this. It's basically what he's saying is, why are you asking me this? You know why I came. You know what I said. You know how I lived. You know what I proclaimed. Look at 29. He continues. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The scriptures often refer to Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. That is what John is doing here. That's kind of the metaphor that he's using or the example that he's using. He says, in essence, basically, Jesus is the bridegroom. And the bride belongs to him. And, and God is sending his bride to him. This is why people are gathering to him. This is what he's saying here. This, his language, that's what he means. He's using these wedding, this wedding sort of example. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. The bride is gathering to her husband, is essentially what he says. He continues, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Love that. John says, The friend of the bridegroom. 
Who is it? You've all been to weddings. Some of you have actually been through it, right? You've had one yourself. Who is it that stands to the left of the groom during the wedding ceremony? What is his title? That's right. He's the best man. Who is it that sits to the left of the groom at the head table? Some of you got married so long ago, like Bruce, he has no idea who was at his wedding. Who stands next to him, man? Who gives the rings? It's the best man. Who sits next to him at the head table next to the groom? It's the best man, right? The best man. Basically what John is saying is, I'm the best man. That's what he's saying. I'm the best man. He says, as the best man, I stand and listen to the bridegroom speak and give his new covenant nuptials, if you will. When Jesus came, he basically gave his nuptials. I've come to die for my church. I've come to die for my elect. He came to initiate this new covenant and these new covenant promises. And so he came as the bridegroom to proclaim his love for his bride in his life, death, and resurrection. And John says, man, as the best man, I listen to the I listen to the bridegroom speak, and it just brings me tremendous joy. I rejoice when he speaks. I rejoice in the fact that he's come. I rejoice in the fact that he speaks. Very powerful things that John is saying. He basically says, I rejoice greatly at the sound of his voice. We have to remember why John the Baptist was given, or John the baby Baptist, whatever you want to call him, was given to Elizabeth and Zechariah and to the world in the first place. Why was he given to Elizabeth who was barren? To her husband and to the world? It was given for the purpose of preparing the people for the coming of the Lord and for identifying him when he came. As I said last week, this is why Jesus called him the greatest of all prophets, the greatest man ever born of the womb of a woman. He is the Lord's direct prophet. Amazing. He rejoices greatly at the sound of his voice. John was about 30 years old when Jesus emerged or John identified him. He kind of stepped out into ministry and into the public eye. He was about 30 years old when the Messiah sort of emerged. And John had spent his childhood years, his teenage years, and his young adult years waiting with eager anticipation for the incredible moment when Jesus would come. You think that if you're born for a specific purpose, and that's to announce and identify the Messiah when he comes, and you know that at a young age, what kind of anticipation would you live your life waiting for that moment that you can actually begin to announce that, prepare the people, and then say, there he is! There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'd be the most giddy kid, non-rebellious Teenager? Maybe, I don't know. Just think about the way that this man might have spent his life, living his life in eager anticipation of this moment. 30 years. Do you think that he was excited when heaven opened up to him or before him in a new way and the father brought the son before his very eyes and then then he heard the son speak? You know, this, you have Jesus maybe in the water. We can imagine with our mind's eye, he's there and he's being baptized and then heaven opens and, and, and then God speaks and says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. The spirit comes and descends upon, upon Jesus in the form of a dove, gentle and peace. 
And here's John the Baptist sitting there, and it's that moment. Man, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. And he sees it with his own eyes, and so did others. And he hears the very voice of God. And what is his response? I rejoice greatly at the sound of his voice. When Jesus begins to speak and preach and teach and call his bride to himself, this guy is beside himself with joy. He rejoices. He rejoices at the sound, greatly at the sound of his voice. All of those years growing up and praying and preparing and then preaching and, and baptizing, and then boom, there he stood up to his waist in the river Jordan, the Son of God, the Messiah, right there. John, without a doubt, knew who Jesus was because a voice boomed from the sky saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John watched the Holy Spirit, all these things. John goes on to say, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. John's greatest joy was to see the people leave his care, leave his leadership, and then go and gather before the groom who is Jesus Christ. John's joy became complete when he heard that Jesus' ministry was surpassing his. Why? Because it was supposed to. <laughs> Jesus' ministry was supposed to surpass John's ministry. John wasn't the Messiah. He even said so before a multitude, before the scribes and Pharisees and others. His ministry was supposed to wane, and the ministry of the Lord was supposed to increase. Why? Jesus is the bridegroom, and the bride belongs to him. Look at verse 30. This verse should be the heart cry of every true Christian. 30, he says, okay, he's, he's the groomsman. The bride belongs to him. Therefore... He must increase, but I must decrease. John tells his interrogators, these guys there questioning him, it's got to be this way. Jesus must increase. He must become the center of attention. He must surpass me in every way. He must be raised up. I must be brought low. He must increase, and I must decrease. That's what John said. There's an incredible, incredible, look at this ministry of John. Isn't it phenomenal? The humility. There's an incredible principle truth here. It's simple yet profound. It is as follows. Listen carefully. Joy comes to us when we decrease and the Lord increases. You see it in the text, don't you? John said, my joy is now complete. Why? Because he was becoming nothing, and Jesus was becoming everything. Therefore, his joy was complete. The reward for that humility, the gift from the Lord for that humility, is the fullness of joy. Complete joy. The world teaches us the opposite, doesn't it? 
It says that we, it says that when we increase, so will our joy and happiness and so on and so forth. But that is a lie. If it were true, then why are there so many bigwigs without joy? You ever thought about that? Why don't you just think about Howard Hughes for a moment, the biggest wig, almost the biggest wig of them all. The man died a lonely shell of a man with fingernails a foot long, toenails a foot long, looked like a hermit in a hotel room. That's how he spent the last days of his life, the wealthiest man, the Bill Gates of his era and time. Man did just about everything that you could possibly do. He built big old planes that look like boats, spruce goose, big old piece of firewood. If the world is right when it says that, man, when you increase yourself, your joy, your happiness, all these things increase, then why are so many bigwigs big wigs without joy? The world tells us to increase and to make a name for ourselves. It tells us to shoot for the stars. And to climb to the top, even using human faces as rungs on a ladder. It tells us to work hard and make a name for ourselves. It tells us that unless you do so, you will be a nobody. Isn't that what it says? You know what? I'm okay with being a nobody in this world. I'm all right with that. And let me tell you why. There is no future in it whatsoever. I'm okay with being a nobody because making a name for myself and well, there's no future in that. The world is going to pass away. What matters to you and I is Christ. He must increase, but we must decrease. Our mission in this life as a church, as Christians, is to raise his banner high until he returns. His banner. He must increase, but we must decrease. Think to yourself for a moment. If your joy seems fleeting... Non-existent, minimal. Maybe the reason why is because you've been trying to increase yourself rather than the Lord. We just have to ask the question, don't we? It's right there. Let me, let me tell you something. I know this from personal experience, but you will never find and secure joy through increasing yourself and pursuing your own glory. Don't believe the world. Don't believe your flesh. Don't believe the devil and the demons. Don't believe the prosperity preachers. Please, don't listen to Joel Osteen. He's a liar. Believe the testimony of John the Baptist, which we see in the very word of God of God the very word of God makes it clear that joy comes to us when we decrease and the Lord increases 
Joy comes to us when we make less of ourselves and more of Jesus. That's the truth. Now let's look at what Paul said in verses 26 to 28. We'll begin to move on. What a ministry John the Baptist had, and we can see why Paul mentioned him in this fantastic sermon. The guy just oozed humility and came to pave the way for the Lord. And, and that just, it just reminds me of something right now. What do you think our task is in this life right now? Do we not know that Jesus is coming back? Are we not to pave a way for him? Yes, we are. We can share in the ministry of John the Baptist to some degree. Now let's look at 26 to 28. It says, brothers, are you guys with me? I'm shouting, but I don't care. You getting it? I hope so, because I went through a lot of stuff this week dealing with this text. 25,000 missiles right on my own head. I was like, dang it, I'm making a lot of myself. What am I doing? Ah! 26, brothers, sons, this is where Paul continues in his sermon. He made these great points about John the Baptist. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him, condemning Jesus he's speaking of. 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, didn't matter. They asked Pilate to have him executed. Now here we see Paul again address both groups in the room, Jews and half-Jews. That's kind of how he started his sermon. He addressed the Jews, and then he addressed those aspiring you know, Gentiles who had gone through some sort of proselytization process and what have you. So here we see him give another salutation. He's calling their attention. Sons of the family of Abraham, there's the Jews and those among you who fear God, there's the Gentiles. And then he says, in effect, because he's not quite done with his angle and position on and kind of exposition of John the Baptist, he says, in effect, John the Baptist was sent to us to proclaim the message of salvation. And that's basically what John did. He's coming. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will not baptize you with water like me. He'll do it with fire. He's basically saying John the Baptist was sent to us to proclaim the message of salvation. Paul then anticipated and answered two questions that might have arisen in the minds of his hearers. This is a technique that he used or employed frequently in his writings. We see him use this tactic throughout the book of Romans. He says something and then he gives back answers. It looks like he's anticipating questions. We also see it in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians. Those are the places where he did it primarily. The first question was one that the Jewish people have wrestled with from apostolic times to now makes a statement, the message of salvation. John the Baptist did all these things. The message of salvation came to us. He anticipates these things. And he answers because he anticipates a question that's been, that these Jews have been wrestling with. Even today they wrestle with it. They would have been thinking as he's saying these things, this message of salvation, John the Baptist, Jesus, what are you, what's going on here? Here's the question. If Jesus is Messiah, why did the Jewish leaders fail to recognize him as such? 
That's the question that would have came to mind. Okay, you're talking about God made these promises long ago to Abraham, and he carried these promises through David, and then through the line of David, he brought the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist came and paved a way for him and, and preached salvation and repentance. Jesus came and prayed, preached these things and did these things, and yada, yada, yada. If that's the truth, then why did those who oversee us fail to recognize him? They, they asked that question today. There's no way that our leaders, the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, teachers, there's no way rabbis would have missed him. They were so in tune with God. Paul gives the reason. He says that the religious leaders were blind, in essence this is what he says, were blind because they did not what? It says in our text, recognize. They did not recognize Jesus and they were what? Ignorant because they did what? Did not understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. Simply put, Paul said that the religious leaders or rulers were blind and ignorant. They had no eyes to see, no ears to hear, no hearts to receive. MacArthur wrote this. Those who are ignorant of the written word will inevitably be ignorant of the living word. Ignorance had become a way of life for them as they substituted ritualism for the truth. That's exactly what they had done. Doing the rituals, not paying attention to the truth. Paul then answered a second question that would have arisen. If we fail to recognize and receive Messiah... Does that nullify God's plans? At the end of verse 27 and in 28, Paul says, absolutely not. He told them that their blindness and ignorance led them, which led them to condemn Jesus, didn't screw up God's plan at all, but actually fulfilled God's plan, which had been uttered through the prophets. Do you see it in the text? Oh, the leaders missed it. They blew it. But that didn't screw up God's plan. It actually fulfilled God's plan according to what the prophets had been saying. This is marvelous here. Didn't screw it up at all. In verse 28, he gave them further proof that God's plans had not been nullified. When the religious leaders handed Jesus over to Pilate, Pilate found that Jesus had committed no crimes worthy of death. Pilate attempted to release Jesus, but the people cried, crucify him, crucify him. Since Jesus was found innocent, why didn't the religious leaders and crowds relent? Pilate was the highest ranking official in the area. He was the most powerful judge with the most authority. And he said, this guy's not innocent. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Why did they not relent? They certainly should have, right? Well, let me tell you why. Because they hated Jesus. Because they hated Jesus. Jesus was handed over to Pilate out of pure hatred. This hatred and heinous act fulfilled prophecy and God's plans as well. Now, which prophetic passages did Paul have in mind here? These utterances of the prophets. How about Psalm 64.4 and Isaiah 53.3 and Luke 18.32-33 for starters? 
What about hatred? Psalm 64, 4. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Cha-ching! Right there. Prophetic saying. The Messiah would feel this, say this, utter this. This would be fulfilled in him because of the hatred of the crowds, of the nation, of the religious leaders. Now how about rejection? Isaiah 53, 3, what does it say? He was despised and what? Rejected by men. They hated him, they rejected him, and then how about handed over? Luke 18, 32 to 33. This is basically a summary of Isaiah 53. For he will be delivered over to the what? Jews know the Gentiles, what was Pilate, a Gentile, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him. See, these things were fulfilled by their hatred and by their heinous act. And that is what Paul is referencing. You did not thwart or nullify God's plan by this devilish act that you did. You actually fulfilled it. You hated him, you rejected him, and you handed him over to a Gentile to be killed and slaughtered. That's what he's saying. Quick summary of Paul's sermon so far before we move on. God promised Abraham that he would bless. This is good because we need, you know, you can lose track of the sermon if you just keep moving without giving reference to what Paul has said so far. So let's just go through the summary and then we'll move on. God promised Abraham that he would bless the world through Abraham's offspring. He's referring to Jesus. God carried his Abrahamic promise through the other patriarchs and Moses and Joshua and the judges. That's what Paul has said so far. God rose up a king after his own heart, King David, who was descended from Abraham and promised David that the Messiah would come through his bloodline. Paul has said that in his sermon. God confirmed and announced the fulfillment of his Abrahamic and Davidic promises through John the Baptist who announced the coming and arrival of Israel's Messiah. We've seen that. Paul's preached that. God sent Jesus the Messiah as confirmed by John the Baptist. Israel was blind and ignorant and then rejected and killed their Messiah. Israel did not nullify God's plans by killing their Messiah, but rather fulfilled them according to the scriptures. That is Paul's sermon to the Galatians in a nutshell. That's what we've covered. That's what he's talked about. This is what he's preaching to these people. This summary covers verses 16 to verse 28, all the way through. Now, in an effort to further prove that Israel did not nullify God's plans, Paul will begin to expound on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Up till now, in the book of Acts, the resurrection has been the keynote of all the apostles' preaching. There's a plethora of verses, Acts 224, 232, 326, 410, 530, 1040, all verses about the resurrection, sermons about the resurrection. They include the resurrection. Paul will take up this mantle just as Peter and John had done previously. Now look at 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Okay, before getting to resurrection, we've got to talk about the death and the burial. After the death of Jesus, which fulfilled things that were written of him, officials had the body of Jesus removed from the cross and put into a tomb. 
Now, do you see here how Paul is presenting the gospel? He's covered three gospel components so far in his sermon. He's talked about the life of Jesus by pointing to the ministry of John the Baptist. He's talked about the death of Jesus at the hands of the rulers and Pilate on a tree or cross. And here in 29, we see Paul present the burial of Jesus in a tomb. Do you see how the gospel's woven into this? This is how these apostles did it. They were insane. They were just bad. They were just killer preachers. And he's talking about the life, you know, the life, the death, and the burial. He's threading the gospel into his presentation. And later on, he's going to call the people to repent and to believe. But that's what he's doing here. Now, two explicit prophecies were to be or were fulfilled in the burial of Jesus Christ. Jesus, number one, was to be buried in a rich man's tomb, according to Isaiah 53.9. So Isaiah 53.9 not only talks about the burial of the Messiah, but in a rich man's tomb. The entire chapter of Isaiah 53 is devoted to the death of Jesus. It says he was despised and rejected, truly a man of sorrows. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He was taken from prison into judgment. Verse 9 says his grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. That unusual prophecy would be difficult to understand apart from the scenario of Christ's burial. He was supposed to have been buried with criminals, but instead was buried in a rich man's tomb, which is amazing. It's like one thing was supposed to happen, but then it was supposed to change, and it did, and God predicted it so long ago. But the burial fulfilled this being buried in a rich man's tomb. Number two, Jesus predicted that he would be buried for three days, according to Matthew 1240, before rising. Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, <laughs> that's funny, Roar, you know, I think of the Loch Ness, belly of the sea monster, I think that's the way the ESV puts it, or maybe the NASB, that's funny, belly of a sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Interesting. Jesus predicted that there would be three days between his death and resurrection, that he would be in the earth for three days days now look at these are just interesting things now look at 30 to see how paul brought up the fourth gospel component okay this is the one we talk about every easter and we leave it alone for the other 364 days shame on us verse 30 look how simple but god raised him from the dead <laughs> but god raised him from you killed him you killed him. You didn't nullify God's plan. Why? You fulfilled prophecy. God raised him from the dead. There it is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fourth gospel component and keynote of all apostolic preaching. The apostles used the resurrection to drive it home every time. Never left it out. It's a cornerstone piece of their preaching. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so important? Let me try to convey its importance by illustrating what it provides for us in extremely non-technical, practical terms. 
Maybe on another day we can really kind of try to exhaust the subject as if we had the ability to do that. But you need to hear the practical aspects of what it means to us and why it's so important. If the apostles made it a cornerstone piece, a centerpiece, a keynote of their preaching, then it must have been extraordinarily important. Let me give you some reasons. A, the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides us proof of salvation. The resurrection validated the claims of Jesus and provided ultimate credibility to his person. Because the resurrection offers such proof, we can believe his message. Moreover, we can belong to the master. It offers proof of salvation. It authenticates all that Jesus said and did. It is God's stamp. Bam! Proof of salvation. No resurrection, no proof of salvation. And that is why every other religion in the world is empty. There's no resurrected Savior in any of it. There's no Savior, period. Let alone a resurrected one. B, the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides us with power over sin, right? Proof of salvation and power over sin. Paul lamented that a man minus the power of God has no hope of living in spiritual victory. Indeed, power over sin in our own strength is assuredly an exercise in futility. But the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, the new life he provided to believers, enables us to live in victory over the enslaving power of sinful flesh as we reckon ourselves to be alive unto God through Jesus Christ. For the believer, power over sin is a bona fide possibility that is effectual by faith. Power over sin See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides us with purpose for serving. Proof of salvation, power over sin, purpose for serving. Yeah, there's peas. Think about it. Because of our resurrection life in Christ, we are connected with the Lord. By His Spirit, He indwells us. We are partakers, partakers of His divine nature. In the words of Alfred Ackley, he said this, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I see his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he is always near. The resurrection means that Christ is with me and will never leave me. It means that I have a context and purpose for my life, which is to love God by obeying Him and to love others by serving them just as Christ served others. The resurrection makes this purpose for serving possible. In fact, it empowers it. You can't serve without resurrection. D, the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides us with the promise, last P, of security. Security. Based upon the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we who trust in him will rise too. God assures us of this by his teaching on first fruits. The earliest ripened fruit Vegetable or grain serves as a harbinger of the main harvest to follow. 
Christ arose and provided that or the sure hope that in him we can have, we can all have confident hope of a glorified eternal body. That is our promise of security, eternal security. It comes to us by way of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are amazing truths. Now, the Apostle Paul made a statement about the resurrection that really drives its importance down deep. If he was striking nails, this one goes below the surface of the wood or whatever. This is a driving point. Over a short amount of time, factions had arose in the church. You had the Judaizers who claimed that all true Christians must be circumcised. And this is what they taught other Christians. Oh, you're a Gentile Christian. Well, you, you, you need to go get cut. Paul was so frustrated with them that he wished that they would go and emasculate themselves. They would just remove their own stuff. This is how frustrating. Paul was just so tolerant. I wonder what Paul would say to those today, if he was here, to those who believe and proclaim that one must be baptized to be saved. I wonder if he would say, go dunk yourself or go drown yourself. I'm pretty sure that's what he would say to them. You've added to what the Lord has done. What did he say to the Judaizers? Go cut yourselves. What would he say to those who add Go do the very thing that you're saying that others have to do to the point that it causes you great misery. There were factions. Paul was never tolerant towards false teachers. Now, you also had a group that rejected the resurrection. They were like the Sadducees with the exception that they were in the church. How they got in there, I don't know. There's a lot of tares in the church. Paul said this to them in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 22. Okay, to the Judaizers, go slice yourselves. To those who reject the resurrection, he said this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
and just take that massive chunk of amazing scripture and boil it down. This is what Paul said to these rejectors of the resurrection, the resolution. (laughs) Sometimes those words just get tangled up, right? They just get excited, giddy. Boiled down, this is what he said to them. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain, our faith is futile, and we are to be pitied above all other people. In other words, we are the biggest fools and idiots in the world. Now look back at Acts 13.30. Go back to it. Acts 13.30, you there? What does it say? But God raised him from the dead. This is the truth, church. This is our hope, church. This is our future, church. And that is what empowers us right now to love and obey God and to love and serve others. Amen. We're going to enjoy a time of communion together. I think that God has presented himself to us today. His truth. A couple of things to ponder before we take the elements, and that's number one. Who's at the top of the list in your life? You or Jesus? Who is to be your life? Jesus, I, can't, I hate it when people say, you got to make Jesus number one in your life. Jesus does not deserve a placement in our life. He is our life. I got to make him number one. No, no, no. He didn't die and rise so that you could make him number one. He is to be your very life. Your life is in him. What does the scripture say? It is hidden in him. He is our life. We live because of him. We live for him. Does it deserve, deserve first place, second place, third place? He is our very life. Amen? Boy, is that the toughest thing in the world to pull off? Because tomorrow morning I'll wake up and I think I'm the bomb. And I'm not. I'm dumb. It's a constant battle. When we hear the Word of God preached like this, what it's meant to do, correct our behavior, realign us with the truth, fill us with massive joy. We may serve God rightfully and receive Christ as our very life. That we know, that we would know, we hear in this text, that we would know that our purpose in life is to glorify the Father by glorifying the Son. That's ultimately how God is glorified. The way that we love and respond and obey Jesus Christ brings God amazing, insane glory. That's why he sent Jesus. Jesus is our life. And until you realize that and take yourself out of this positional equation. Good luck having joy. It won't last. Your flesh will be appeased and pleased at times because of your pursuits. But how long does that last? Why would we not? Shouldn't it be our disposition to want to magnify God? Isn't that what new creation means? Yes, that's what it means.
We've gotten off track. Let's spend some time confessing to the Lord how we've gotten off track and how we desire to have Him as our life and to exalt Him to make ourselves nothing and to raise up His banner high in this community that which, which needs Him. This community does not need one more Christian. This community, trust me, does not need one more Christian that's pursuing and running crazy and amassing and trying to glorify themselves. This community needs that like it needs a tumor. And it's amazing to me how there's churches in town that are all about themselves. Prosperity, favor, riches, wealth. This community, this world does not need them because they're just like the world. And the last thing the world needs is more people like the world. Amen? And it's got to begin with me. This guy right here. And with our elders. If you've made much of yourself, humble yourself. Make much of the Lord. And the only way that you're going to do anything like that because of the second thing we talked about, the resurrection. The resurrection enables us to, I mean, our, our salvation is locked away in it. It enables us to have power over sin, to humble ourselves. It's such a, a key aspect of the gospel. Let's reflect on those things as we enter into this time of communion. Confess your sin and spend time just enjoying the Lord's presence. Take those elements, remembering what they symbolize. They symbolize, that juice symbolizes the blood of Jesus which was spilled for the remission of your sin. Even the sins that you commit today. The sin of exalting yourself. There's no sin that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. Not in the life of a believer. You take those elements, you remember what they, rem- they remember what they mean. The sins have been removed. Broken body of Jesus Christ in that bread. Broken. And remember the resurrection. The glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, which secures our salvation, empowers us to live for him, empowers us to serve one another. It's amazing. Father, help us in this time. Maybe for some of us in this room, we are having great difficulty with what's been said because we've been taught something opposite to what your word actually teaches. That it's okay to exalt ourselves up. In fact, that's God's plan for our life is just to, to put us right up there at the top. Oh, James and John had that ideology, didn't they? Can I sit to your left? Put John over to the right? Isn't that what we want? Why do we want that? Self glorification. May we decrease. May you increase, Lord. May we serve you in humility. We're just a speck, less than a speck. And yet in eternity past, you chose to save us. For many of us, you have ordained that we would have ministry. In fact, you give all believers ministry to some degree, even. But if we have ministry, it's because you've granted it. May we honor you in it, serve you faithfully. All 
all the time that we serve that we are exalting Christ. We are humbling ourselves and we are exalting Christ. Doesn't matter if you're cleaning this building, doesn't matter if you're teaching children the gospel, doesn't matter if you're preaching in a pulpit, doesn't matter if you're caring for people with the gospel, it doesn't matter what you do. In Jesus, your banner should be above us, above us all. I help it to be that way. Humble us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.